Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. And that's me, I'm Dr. Jeff. I'm a paediatric oncologist, you know, a children's cancer doctor here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, Australia. And this podcast is mostly for the parents of children who are being treated for childhood cancer or leukemia, but it's for anyone else who's interested as well. Anyway, today I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. Basically, what I'm going to do is read out an article that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology for you. And it's not some highly technical article. It's from a a series called Art of Oncology that they publish in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So the American Society of Clinical Oncology has given me permission to read out this article. And like I said, it's from the Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is, you know, perhaps the premier uh, journal for clinical cancer stuff. It has a lot of uh, articles on adult cancer and it also often contains the very key articles on childhood cancer. A big blue journal, a must read if you're in the oncology world. But in addition to having permission from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, I've also got permission from the author to read out her article. And the author is one Professor Susan Cohn, C-O-H-N, Susan Cohn. And Susan Cohn is one of the most eminent paediatric oncologists in the world. And in particular, she's made an incredible contribution to working out the best treatment for a type of childhood cancer called neuroblastoma. She's been a leader within the US Children's Oncology Group Studies in Neuroblastoma. And she's one of those people that, you know, probably gets about 10 or 20 emails a day from all over the world, from people looking for advice. What should I do in this particular situation? And she always answers the emails very promptly and with great thought. So I don't know if you remember the podcast I did on what not to give your paediatric oncologist for Christmas, but you'll remember in that episode I talked about a whole bunch of other people that you should give a present to instead of giving a present to your paediatric oncologist. Well, someone else that I would add to the list of people you should give presents to or gratitude to before your paediatric oncologist would be all of those people around the world that get asked for advice all the time. You know, these really famous people who get 10 or 20 emails a day asking for advice. What should we do here? What should we do there? And it's incredible how many of them... uh, answer so promptly. They, they seem to know that there's a, a family sweating on the advice that might come and really looking for a reply as soon as possible. So I'm in awe of some of these people and their capacity to give such well-thought-out advice uh, by email to people. Now, I'm not saying you should now all go and email Dr. Susan Cohn and ask for her advice. These are things that should rightly come through your paediatric oncologist rather than them getting a barrage of emails from parents. So I'm reading out this article and it is about neuroblastoma, but I'm reading it more because it talks about clinical trials and uh, reasons for being in clinical trials and some of the issues people go through thinking about being in clinical trials and And then it reveals some insights into uh, what the author experienced as 
the results came out and subsequent events. But first, back to Dr. Susan Cohn. So she is Professor and Director of Clinical Sciences in the Department of Paediatrics and Dean for Clinical Research in Biological Sciences at the University of Chicago. So while her title says University of Chicago, that's the sort of American way for people in academic medicine. There's obviously a huge, great hospital attached to the university, and that's where Dr. Cohn uh, sees and treats patients. Now, before I go on with the article, I'll just mention uh, something about the drug in question that's studied in this trial, and it's a, a drug for neuroblastoma, a particular type of cancer, and the drug in question is something you called immunotherapy, and it's what we call an antibody. And it's, so it's an antibody, a bit like the things we have that fights off chickenpox and measles and influenza. But this is an antibody that's been developed to be an antibody against the neuroblastoma cells, and in particular against a chemical on the surface of neuroblastoma cells called GD2. But like I said, this isn't just for uh, people who are interested in neuroblastoma. You might find it uh, interesting even if you're not particularly interested in neuroblastoma. But I'll read this article. I'm not going to stop in the middle of it and try to clarify things. I'm just going to read it word for word as it was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in November 2015. So here we go. A Selfless Act by Susan L. Cohn Within minutes after opening the email from the American Society of Clinical Oncology on March 10, 2015, announcing the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval of Dinatuximab, chimeric monoclonal antibody CH1418, or Unituxin, from United Therapeutics, Silver Spring, Maryland, I contacted Amy's mother. Names have been changed. Amy was referred to our hospital in 2007 when she was three years old after being diagnosed with high-risk neuroblastoma. She had developed a limp and leg pain and an evaluation at another hospital revealed an adrenal mass and metastatic disease in multiple bones and the bone marrow. I met Amy and her parents in our clinic to discuss the diagnosis, prognosis and treatment plan. Although I have been caring for children with cancer for more than 30 years, I still find it difficult to break the news to a parent that his or her child has a potentially terminal illness. For children with some types of cancers, I am able to emphasise that the prognosis is excellent and that the treatment is well tolerated. This is not the case, however, for high-risk neuroblastoma. I told Amy's parents that, with current treatments, approximately 40% of children are cured. I also stated... Although this number may be difficult to hear, please remember it is just a statistic. Right now, I am only concerned about one patient, 
and my intention is to cure Amy. Because there were no open clinical trials at the time for patients with newly diagnosed neuroblastoma, I recommended treatment that was based on the best arm of a completed, randomised, paediatric cooperative group clinical trial. I explained that this study showed better outcomes with myeloablative therapy followed by bone marrow transplantation than with chemotherapy. Amy's parents had tears in their eyes as I reviewed the intensive, multimodal therapy and the expected toxicities. I also informed Amy's parents that even if their daughter had no evidence of disease after she completed the planned therapy, the neuroblastoma could return and the cure after relapse remains elusive. Amy tolerated her induction chemotherapy well. However, she developed high fevers and severe mucositis during consolidation and she remained in the hospital for weeks after the stem cell transplantation. Amy's energy and appetite slowly returned. Two months after her stem cells were infused, Amy's mum told me that Amy finally was beginning to act like the daughter she knew before the diagnosis of neuroblastoma. Amy received radiation after her stem cell transplantation. Seven months after her initial diagnosis, Amy was in remission. I was thrilled that Amy's tumour responded so well to treatment but I knew that she was likely to have minimal residual disease. I reminded Amy's parents that their daughter remained at significant risk for relapse. I informed them that a prior randomised cooperative group clinical trial had shown that oral isotretinoin, or cis-retinoic acid, given after consolidation, improved the outcome for patients with high-risk neuroblastoma. On the basis of these results, retinoic acid is now considered part of the standard of care therapy for high-risk neuroblastoma. However, we are always looking for better treatments, I explained and your daughter is eligible for a randomised children's oncology group clinical trial that is comparing retinoic acid alone with immunotherapy combined with retinoic acid. The expected toxicities of the two regimens on this study differed substantially. The immunotherapy regimen, which consisted of intravenous monoclonal antibody, CH1418, and cytokines, was administered during four days in the hospital, and patients required a morphine drip because of the antibody-induced peripheral nerve pain. Other toxicities include swelling caused by capillary leak, 
low blood pressure, hives, and more serious allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis. Conversely, the most common adverse effect of oral retinoic acid is dry skin. I stress that although we designed the study on the basis of the anti-neuroblastoma activity seen in patients with relapsed disease, we did not know if the immunotherapy combined with retinoic acid would lead to improved survival in patients who were in first remission. We needed to complete the randomised clinical trial to answer this question. Amy's parents listened carefully. They were, understandably, concerned that Amy would again be in the hospital and separated from her sister if she was assigned to the immunotherapy arm. They also were worried about the pain and need for a morphine drip associated with the antibody therapy. After all, Amy was just beginning to feel better after being hospitalised for weeks because of the toxicities of high-dose therapy and stem cell transplantation. As a physician desperate to find better treatments for my patients, I understand the potential impact that a randomised study can have for children worldwide who are diagnosed with neuroblastoma. During my career, I have witnessed remarkable advances in the treatment of neuroblastoma and other paediatric cancers that resulted from randomised cooperative group studies. For a parent, though, enrolling a son or daughter onto a randomised trial truly is a selfless act. The decision to participate in this particular clinical trial was especially agonising because the treatment arms were so disparate. I suggested that Amy's parents go home and take some time to think about whether or not they would like to enrol their daughter onto this study. One week later, Amy's mother and father met with me in the clinic. We have decided to do the clinical trial, said Amy's mum. My daughter has benefited from families who enrolled their children onto previous clinical studies, and we want to help future children with this disease. Amy was enrolled onto the study a few days later and was randomly assigned to the immunotherapy arm. She developed many of the expected toxicities of immunotherapy, and I know that her mum asked herself if she made the right decision when she saw her daughter, swollen and miserable, on a morphine drip. However, Amy and her family persevered, and Amy completed the planned therapy. Eight years later, Amy remains in remission and is a healthy preteen who loves school, cheerleading and Taylor Swift. When I called Amy's mum with the news about the US Food and Drug Administration approval, I was the one with tears in my eyes. I informed her that the approval of dinatuximab 
was based on the demonstration of significantly improved survival with immunotherapy plus retinoic acid on the Children's Oncology Group randomised clinical trial. Her selfless act would help children with neuroblastoma in the future. And that's the end of the article. Again, that was me reading out an article by Professor Susan Cohn, who's a paediatric oncologist at the University of Chicago and a world expert on neuroblastoma. And that was an article called A Selfless Act from the Journal of Clinical Oncology, November 10, 2015. I hope you enjoyed hearing this article. I'd be interested in any feedback you could put at the Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and look up Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff and leave me some comments. Tell me if this is a useful thing for me to do. I suppose you could just read the article, but you'd need to find the journal. And plus, some people like listening to articles. Anyway, let me know if you think this is a useful thing, and I might do a few more of these. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.